Good afternoon and welcome this beautiful, beautiful Saturday and I'm Carla Hayden with the Pratt Library and welcome to the 2013 Macon Day celebration and it's so wonderful to see so many familiar faces and to know that you have been the support of making sure that Mankin's legacy and life uh, is remembered, but also that we can all ponder what I uh, just mentioned to our wonderful guest speaker today. What would Mankin say? <laughs> this past 24 hours, you wonder, would he have had, as some have said, the patience to even blog? I'm sure Twitter would have given him quite an interesting thing, and he would call everybody a twit. <laughs> <laughs> so we are just delighted to be here again. He would have been 133 um, this coming Thursday on September 12th, and um, we have seen, especially with the Mencken Society, the opportunity to even if we don't know how he would have reacted to the uh, computer age, to actually make sure that more people have access. And we hope that you'll continue to give us your comments as we try to put uh, Mr. Mencken into the blogosphere and how we can be more effective with that. I mentioned um, our guest speaker today, and he speculated about the blogging that Rush Limbaugh would have quite a uh, adversary <laughs> in that. And so it's my pleasure to introduce our guest who will deliver the memorial lecture today. He, um, and many of you may have even uh, been aware of his number one New York Times best-selling book. Um, and he also, and that was the an anatomy Anatomy of Addiction, and he's the author of other books, including H.L. Mencken, Baby Book, uh, not the one that is on the cover with the tub on the latest issue of that. He's the George Wants, Distinguished Professor of the History of Medicine and the Director of the Center for the History of Medicine at the University of Michigan. He's a regular contributor to the National Public Radio Science Friday. He lived in Baltimore. 20 years ago and said that he had even visited the Pratt Library. So we're so pleased to welcome him today, Dr. Howard Markell. Thank you. Um, yeah, I used to live two blocks down. And uh, so I recall as an intern, it was in 1986, I was on call the first Mencken day I was in Baltimore, and I drove to work and I saw a whole bunch of you probably <laughs> climbing up the hill and I was jealous and uh, I had to go off for a 36-hour shift. Um, and on my spare time as an intern and a resident, I used to come here. And uh, became I always loved H.L. Mencken, uh, but became acquainted with the H.L. Mencken room. And I was nosing around the H.L. Mencken room, looking at his hay fever diaries, where he would, uh, he was quite a hypochondriac, as you may know, and uh, this is pre-Benadryl. So he would, he would record his temperature, uh, the, 
what his handkerchief looked like on different times. And Vince Fitzpatrick, who I saw earlier, said, you know, you know Menken actually ghost wrote a, a baby care book, which he did, uh, for a man named Leonard Hirschberg, who was perhaps the biggest quack ever to graduate from the Johns Hopkins <laughs> Medical School, but that's another story. Mercifully, that book, the H.L. Menken Baby Book, which I wrote mostly here in this library, is out of print. Um, I think there's a warehouse in Philadelphia with tons of copies, but I, it's mercifully a, a first effort, and I hope I've gotten better in the years that have passed. Um, today, uh, I, I'm absolutely thrilled to be in this library and in this auditorium. I've seen a lot of Menken addresses here. Uh, and back in Baltimore, uh, it's, a, it's a great honor, and I, I thank you very much. It's a very meaningful invitation to me. I'll be talking a little bit about my most recent book, An Anatomy of Addiction. Uh, Sigmund Freud, who you probably all know, um, not personally, hopefully, but you probably all know, and William Halstead, who some of you may know, and if you live in Baltimore, you should know. He was perhaps the greatest surgeon who ever lived. Uh, and the miracle drug that they both uh, uh, dabbled with a little bit too much, cocaine. Now, if you listen carefully, because it is the Menken Memorial Lecture, H.L. Menken will make a guest appearance, I promise. But you, you have to pay attention. But I promise you he will be here. Uh, well, first, you know, this was the original cover, by the way, and... Uh, my medical students loved that, um, and so I was a little bit nervous about it. And I, I actually gave a, a talk at the Hazelton Recovery Institute about this book, and the recovering addict said, could you please get that pile of cocaine off the cover? I love the book, <laughs> but that's driving me nuts. And so uh, the paperback, mercifully, is a little bit more, more germane, and uh, you just have the two young men there. Now... Addiction is a very thorny, thorny issue. It's thorny for doctors, it's thorny for all healthcare professionals, and it's particularly thorny for those who suffer from it and for uh, the people who love them. And it's changed in its meaning and continues to change over time. So as someone like me who's a historian of medicine, I was, I was surprised to find how relatively new addiction is in the medical textbooks. Historically, it really comes from a term from Roman law, from first century Roman law. And this was, uh, if I owed you a great deal of money and I could not pay you back, you would take me before a judge and he would make me your addict, your slave. So addictio is the Latin. So, and I love that, that notion that you're enslaved to someone or something. And that, that was the definition of an addict for many a, a millennia, uh, many a century to come. Occasionally, by the 15th or 16th century, it could be associated with certain bad habits. Samuel Johnson said, for example, I'm addicted to reading. Uh, other people would find they were addicted to certain foods or sweets. But it really didn't become uh, the modern definition of taking an exogenous substance to excess, whatever that substance might be, to the point that you are causing real damage to yourself, to your relationships, uh, you're losing your job, things like this. Uh, and this really emerges in the 1880s. It wasn't really a term uh, that doctors used up in that time. That doesn't mean there weren't addicts, and it doesn't mean there weren't alcoholics. It's just that they had different names for them. But the other thing, as I'll, I'll get into in a bit, is that addiction, particularly to some of the drugs that we now contend with, including cocaine, but also heroin and uh, a lot of other substances really weren't 
well-developed or, I should say, easily obtainable uh, on the level that they are in the 20th and now the 21st century. So people weren't seeing as many addicts because it had not yet caught on. Now, this is different than the term substance abuse, which is just abusing a substance, but you don't necessarily uh, lose everything while you're doing it, and hopefully you don't feel that need to continually take it despite getting clear evidence that it's probably not a good thing for you to do. Well, the birth of the modern addict really did occur in the 1880s, and there were two doctors, or many doctors, but there were two who became very interesting to me that were present at this birth, and this was about 1884, and the first, the bearded gentleman on the right, right, yeah, that's Sigmund Freud, he's still a very young Sigmund Freud, and on the left is William Stewart Halstead, who was then a dashing New York surgeon. This was before he came to Baltimore. And, you know, there, there are many things that you can be addicted to, and as neuroscience is uh, progressing, which is remarkable. In fact, just this morning I was uh, watching a morning show, and Alan Alda was talking about a special about how lawyers want to use functional MRI devices to tell if somebody is lying or not. So we'll be able to do that. You know, I would love that for my students on Tuesday when I ask them if they read the assignment. Um, <laughs> but that's another story. But the primary addiction, according to Sigmund Freud, as he wrote to his friend Wilhelm Fleece, was not any of these substances. To Freud, the primary addiction was masturbation. The rest was substitutes for that. <laughs> There's so many reasons why we don't subscribe to Sigmund Freud any longer. Um, <laughs> And I think there's a good clue as to why. There's a good clue. But he's still fascinating. Somebody got to argue with him. Why are you about Freud? He was wrong about everything. Well, he's an interesting guy, and he actually shaped history and the way we think about the way we think. So, you know, we still read Aristotle, even though he was wrong about everything or whatever. So, but Sigmund Freud's a fascinating guy, and he's well worth reading because he writes so well. Um, now, in 1884, uh, a miracle drug was developed and it was cocaine hydrochloride. Now cocaine, or coca, had been around for millennia, and there were uh, uh, aboriginals uh, 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 living in the Peru and Bolivia area, Colombia area, who would uh, chew coca leaves, because it grows at a certain altitude, about 6,000 feet. It grows best on the slopes of the Andes uh, mountain range. And so chewing the coca leaf will give you sort of a buzzy sensation, but it's not purified and you won't go off the deep end as if you've ever seen or you've used cocaine, but if you've ever seen somebody in the movies, as a, cocaine's quite a stimulant and will make you quite, quite jazzed up. And so they would use it to stimulate themselves uh, to, uh, while they were working or to stay awake, much as we have uh, coffee or, or tea. And it's still used as a, as a coffee or a tea, an infusion drink uh, in that part of the world to this day. Um, now, a lot of people became interested in coca leaves as people from the old world started traveling to the new world. So if you read Alexander von Humboldt or you read other explorers of what is now South America, they will all talk about coca leaves and that buzzy sensation and how great it is. Uh, the problem is, is that you had a very long journey back from you know, Peru to Europe. And these are leaves, after all. And so you'd have to go 
up and down hills and across the Amazon and then into a boat. And so to bring a large quantity of coca leaves from uh, the New World to the Old World was no easy feat. And even if you had succeeded in bringing it to the port, it often would spoil uh, or get uh, damaged with seawater or what have you. So there was a real rate-limiting step for much of the uh, early 19th century, even though it was written about in British journals and German journals and so on and so forth. Uh, but eventually, enough coca leaves got to the uh, old world, and chemists began to ex explore it. What is it that makes it so you know, zippy? What is it about that? And it was beginning in the 1860s and the 1870s, they would add a little hydrochloric acid here, a little sulfuric acid there, and finally they would come out with an alkaloid salt that we know as cocaine hydrochloride. And it was a powder, and uh, it was white, and this was great because you could weigh it, you could dispense it, and you could sell it. And, you know, we, we see ads today on television and in the newspapers about this drug and that drug, and they're directly advertised to people. Uh, this didn't start yesterday. Uh, big pharmaceutical houses have been doing this for hundreds of years. And cocaine was one of the drugs that uh, was a big seller. And it was going to cure everything. It was going to cure tuberculosis. It was going to cure depression. In fact, that's how Freud originally got interested in it. It, would, it was a stimulant, so it made you stay awake longer. Uh, it was going to cure flatulence, if that was something you were troubled from. Or troubled from. And most interesting, particularly to Freud, uh, was that it would um, be an antidote to morphine addiction. Now, today... And that, that, you know, but of course, that's the great thing about looking back is that you always look smarter than the guys you're talking about. But um, uh, you know, the, the problem is, is that uh, it was thought to be an antidote, to, and, and morphine and uh, other opium, really opium, and then morphine and its other analogs was the original drug of addiction. And there's a reason why it became a popular drug of addiction, especially after 1820 and particularly 1860, because first. Uh, morphine was developed in 1820, and then the hypodermic syringe was developed in 1860. If you swallow morphine, it doesn't really get you very high uh, because the stomach destroys it. But if you can figure out a way to inject it, then you're really, you know, cooking with gas. So, uh, you know, and morphine was, you know, really over-prescribed. It was prescribed for everything. And, uh, and it worked for a lot of things until it didn't work. Um, it was prescribed more frequently to, for women than for men uh, for so-called female complaints. And a great example of that, if anyone's read uh, or seen uh, Eugene O'Neill's Long Day's Journey Into Night, uh, which is based on his family. Uh, uh, Mrs. O'Neill, she's Mary Tyrone in the play, is a morphine addict. And indeed, she was given uh, morphine for postpartum depression after she had Eugene O'Neill. And she remained, until the very end of her life, uh, she stopped near the end of her life, a, a raging morphine addict. So the idea that if you could cure somebody by giving them another drug, uh, that was something that was very interesting. And as I'll explain in a minute, particularly to Sigmund Freud, well, let's go very far from Baltimore. Let's go very far from Charles or Cathedral Street to Vienna, the 1880s. This is the University of Vienna. It's actually a perfect view if you're at the Lanzmann Coffee House. The Cafe Lanzmann is where uh, Sigmund Freud used to sip espresso. 
and you can still sit in his booth to this day. They charge you a little bit more for that. Um, but I, I actually did. I, I didn't become any smarter, but I sat there. And uh, inside there is an arcade with all of the greats, uh, all the great professors have their busts. You know, like a, a statue or a bust of them. And young Sigmund Freud would look at the statues of his teachers and say, I, I'm going to be up there one day. And, you know, every medical student does that. But very few actually get up there. Sigmund Freud did, in fact, get there. And he was a young Jewish medical student at the University of Vienna. Uh, the University of Vienna was perhaps the, the greatest place in the world at that time to study medicine. And the Allgemeine Krankenhaus, the, the Vienna General Hospital, was the Parnassus of medicine. Uh, all the greats taught there. And if you were an American physician, for example, uh, <coughs> Excuse me. If you had your degree between, oh, say, 1860 and 1920, 50 percent of those American MDs went over to places like Vienna, but also Berlin and Leipzig, to study under these great masters. So Freud was there at the right place at the right time. But unfortunately, he was Jewish. And being a Jew in Vienna then and for many, many years to come was not exactly uh, a great way to climb the social ladder. So he was very aware of his otherness and was a very ambitious fellow. He was also a very nervous fellow. And we know a great deal about Sigmund Freud because this is his fiancée, Martha Bernays, and he was engaged to her from 1882 to 1886. And during that period, it was a long-distance relationship. She lived outside of Hamburg and he lived in Vienna. So there's hundreds and hundreds of letters uh, between the two. And he's telling her all about the frustrations of being a Jewish medical student, uh, uh, anti-Semitic encounters. He writes to her about his experiments with cocaine. In fact, some of the funniest letters he ever writes, he's under the influence of cocaine. And you don't have to be a real detective to figure out which are cocaine-induced. My favorite is, uh, uh, I want to hug you uh, your little body is no match for a big bear of a man with cocaine in his veins. And so. <laughs> well, probably still true. Uh, and uh, so we have a really great sense of uh, what he was doing and what he was up to during that time. Now, if Sigmund wanted to meet his great ambition, which was to become a professor of some medical topic at the University of Vienna, he would not only have to become a great physician, uh, and back then the diagnosis was everything. There wasn't a lot you could do in the 1880s for your patients. There weren't a lot of drugs, there weren't a lot of operations. It was very different than what it is today. And so the real hallmark of a great physician was being able to diagnose and then saying, see ya, um, <laughs> I'm going to go get a coffee. Um, you know, sometimes the good old days really were the good old days. You know, if you're a doctor, it'd be kind of fun to do that, but um, not if you're a patient. And the other thing that if you wanted to become a professor would be you'd have to discover something really great, something earth-shaking. And the 1880s, 90s, even the 1900s, you know, if you study the history of medicine, you know, that era and all the way till the present is really fun because it's just, you know, ideas and discoveries are being made like corn popping out of a pan. It's just whether it's the discovery of infectious diseases or vaccines or surgical procedures and on and on and on, just a, a really a great renaissance of ideas. So he had to discover something that was really, really big. Now, 
he was primarily wanted to be a scientist, uh, even though he was getting an MD, and he worked at the Vienna Institute of Physiology. Uh, this is his, um, his teacher, uh, Wilhelm uh, Brecke, uh, and he uh, didn't have a real chance of getting the best job which was called first assistant. There was somebody else who taught that, who had that job, who will come up in a minute. His name was Ernst von Fleischel Marxo. But Freud did a lot of very descriptive studies of neuroanatomy. So if you look at his papers of that era, and they're published, you can find them very easily. They're really descriptions, you know, of what this neuron looks like under the microscope. And there's drawings that he did himself. Himself, he designed a a stain to look at brain tissue a little bit more easily and stains were very important because if you look at just regular tissue under a microscope it won't look like much so certain certain parts of a body will pick up one color and some will pick up another and it allows doctors to differentiate between that but he was really kind of spinning his wheels not doing anything of of great import and so Brooke said to him you know you really ought to finish your medical studies and you ought to think about finishing your what we would now call a residency. And there he did his work at the Agamemnon Krankenhaus. Now those buildings still exist. It's part, I mean, the hospital still exists, but it's a new building, of course. But the original building still exists. It's part of the University of Vienna. And it was really wonderful when I was writing this book to go there and troll around and, and actually go into the rooms where Freud lived and uh, describes to Martha and so on. He had uh, some very interesting teachers on Right up here is a man named uh, Nothnagel, who was a neurologist and an internist. Nothnagel told his students, no one should uh, expect to be a doctor if he needs more than four hours of sleep a night. <laughs> and the other man, way down there, is a very famous surgeon named Bill Rote. And Bill Rote was a dear friend of Brahms. Uh, he was also, Bill Rote was a very talented musician as well as a very talented surgeon, and he was uh, a raging anti-Semite. And he wrote a very famous book about medical education, and there was a whole chapter of why Jews were not uh, equipped to become doctors. So imagine you're a Jewish student, you have this guy as your teacher. Kind of kind of creepy, kind of creepy. So now, uh, before cocaine became a medicinal agent, it was discovered by people who made uh, tonics. Now, very few people know what that word means, but tonics were sort of patent medicines that would give you a little lift. And the first really popular one was Vin Mariani. And Angelo Mariani was a, uh, a chemist. He came from Corsica, but he lived in Paris. And he figured out a formula to mix about six to seven milligrams of first coca leaves that were ground down and then later he used cocaine hydrochloride with uh, a, a, a beverage that was very popular in France, Bordeaux wine. And so he made cases and cases of this stuff and he was a brilliant marketer because he would uh, give free cases to famous people provided he could use their picture and a little blurb on his ad. So, you know, Thomas Edison, you know, loved the stuff. You know, Vin Mariani lights up my life, you know, and it would be in the New York Times. Or, you know, that wasn't quite the ad, but I like it. But, uh, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, he, he liked it a little bit too much. That's where Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde comes from. You know, I was, I was kidnapped by, by Vin Mariani and on and on and on and on. So in a way, uh, Angelo Mariani became the first cocaine millionaire. Uh, in the history of medicine. And for some reason, this, this product of wine and cocaine became wildly popular. 
It was the, it was the, it was the Starbucks of its day. And it was entirely legal. So we didn't have laws, particularly in the United States, till about 1914 when the Harrison Narcotics Control Act was passed. But you could go down the street. Well, you could still go down the street, but you. you, you <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's an entirely different issue. But you could go down the street to your druggist and you could just pick it up off the shelf and you could get a bottle of Vin Mariani. Now, another guy named John Scythe Pemberton in Atlanta, he decided to make a copycat product and he mixed Bordeaux wine with cocaine. He was very interested in it because he was a, uh, a veteran of the Civil War. He, was fight, he fought on the Confederate side, and he lost uh, a leg. And he had something called phantom limb pain, where after the amputation, it really hurts at the stump, and he was in terrible pain, and he became a morphine addict. So he read the same paper in a journal, a medical journal, about cocaine being an antidote to morphine that Sigmund Freud is reading. And I'll talk about that in a minute. So he became very interested, and he made a product of, of Bordeaux wine and cocaine, and he gave it the name French Coca Wine. wasn't a great name. A few weeks later, the, the city of Atlanta passed a prohibition law, and you couldn't sell alcohol of any kind, so he brought uh, some uh, uh, cola nuts, some soda water, uh, some cocaine, and some syrup, and he made that wonderful drink, Coca-Cola. And if you can see from this ad, it refreshes the parched throat, it invigorates the fatigued body, and quickens the tired brain. And it, that was the real thing. I mean, it contained Coke. Uh, Coca-Cola contained cocaine until about 1914. Uh, and it was quite the tonic. And it, it too, became wildly popular. Uh, and it still is to this very day. Well. What really began, began cocaine as the medicinal drug and what allowed doctors to addict many of their patients was that big pharma got involved in it. And the company that really led the way was a Detroit company called Park Davis and Company. And uh, Park Davis figured out a very good formula to take these coca leaves and mass manufacture and produce cocaine hydrochloride. And uh, Mr. Davis, George Davis was a brilliant marketer. Park was the chemist and Davis was the marketer. And Davis uh, advertised intensely and published seven or eight different medical journals that were highly regarded. The Therapeutic Age, the Detroit Lancet, the Therapeutic Gazette, on and on. All these journals were in medical libraries around the country, around the world. You can go to the Vienna Medical Society and pull from the stacks the copies that Freud read, and you can actually find his handwriting. And once you know his handwriting, it's like Mencken's handwriting. I mean, once you know their handwriting, it's really quite characteristic. And so there are a lot of people reading about these wonderful, um, about the wonders of cocaine in journals published by the main company that made cocaine. The other thing, by the way, that Park Davis owned was a, a book called Index Medicus which was a giant index of all the medical literature published every year, sort of a search engine, if you will, of the world's medical literature. So imagine you've got a great product made by a pharmaceutical company. They're pushing it in papers that they're commissioning in their own journals, and they also own the main index that's filled with ads for cocaine hydrochloride. Kind of thing, if you don't have to imagine it, they're still doing that. So... Um, they, but it didn't, it didn't just happen yesterday. It's been going on for quite some time. 
So Freud was reading the same papers that Pemberton was reading, and he was particularly interested in the notion that you could use cocaine as a morphine antidote because of this man, Ernst von Fleischel Marxo, who was the first assistant in Brooke's physiology lab. He was a brilliant physiologist. He um, nicked his thumb while dissecting a cadaver. And that became very infected. And this is pre-antibiotics. It got worse and worse and worse. And he had to have the thumb removed. Now, that effectively ended his medical career because it's very hard to be a surgeon without a thumb. Although I've met a few, actually. But um, it's very hard. And, uh, but the problem with that uh, uh, amputation was that it left something called a neuromata, which is a tangle of nerve tissue that is famously painful. It just hurts all the time. And there was nothing he could do to get rid of the pain. He tried everything. He took hot baths. He, he stayed up all night. He read Sanskrit. He learned calculus. Nothing worked until he discovered morphine. And then in a matter of months, he became a raging morphine addict, and no one knew where he was, or Freud and his friends would be called to von Fleischel Marxo's rooms at night, and he'd be naked or delirious or what have you. And so they saw this wonderful, brilliant man who everybody loved just you know, going to ruin. And so Freud mentioned, look, I read this paper. It was in a Park Davis journal about uh, uh, cocaine, hydrochloride. That could be you know, a pretty good antidote for morphine. So on Fleischel Marx, I was desperate, said, yeah, let's try it. So something really remarkable happened in the first couple of weeks. The morphine consumption went way down for von Fleischel Marxo. But as the weeks went on, the cocaine consumption went way up. And then as a few weeks and months went by, so did the morphine uh, use. So what Freud did was convert a morphine addict into a morphine and cocaine addict. And this was, he felt guilty about this for the rest of his life. And in fact, this paint, this portrait, this photograph hung on uh, his study wall for the rest of his life. Well, uh, before all the really bad stuff happened with the addiction, von Fleischel Marxo said to uh, Sigmund Freud, look, you got to publish because this is something that's really incredible. And of course, publisher Parrish was just as part of the academic scene then as it is today. And so Freud wrote a monograph, a 70-page monograph, called Uber Cocaine on Cocaine. The problem about writing on cocaine is that Freud was on cocaine <laughs> as he wrote it. And he took a lot. And you can kind of figure out how much he took. And it's interesting because he'll talk about in the prose uh, my most gorgeous experiments of this wonderful drug, which is not the kind, if you read scientific literature, you don't see that kind of stuff very often. <laughs> and uh, so uh, he, he, he wrote about that, and you can, tell, you can tell, but he missed one thing. Cocaine is a marvelous local anesthetic. So if you've ever seen a, a cop show, and there's a pile of cocaine there, and the cop will put his finger on it and touch his gums. And that's because it'll numb the gum. And if you can put it in a solution because it melts in water, you could actually numb the skin or deeper, whatever you want. And in fact, when you go to the dentist and you take lidocaine or novocaine, those are um, synthetic versions of cocaine. They don't get you high and they don't have the addictive principles, but they block the nerve just as cocaine would. But Freud completely missed that. Now, why? Well, he, he was on cocaine. Um, <laughs> Although, 
it, it, it's striking that he missed that. Uh, he was in a rush to publish. Later on, he complained that his fiance was distracting him, which is she wasn't even in town. Uh, but he missed it. And the guy who got it is this guy, a man named Carl Kohler, who was a colleague of Freud's uh, at the Vienna uh, General Hospital. He wanted to be an ophthalmologist. Now, ophthalmology then, as now, was a very competitive field. Um, as a medical school professor, I never understood why the smartest kids in the class go into a field where the, the deepest question you ask is, which one is better, this one or that one? But that's, I'm off my topic here. But, um, but it makes sense why Kohler would want to uh, numb the eyeball, because the most common procedure he did was a cataract procedure. And up until that time, there was no anesthetic for it. Now, ether and chloroform existed. It existed since the 1840s. But it's not a good, uh, it's a general anesthetic that makes you vomit and increases the pressure in your chest and behind your eye. So it's not a very good agent to use for a delicate eye procedure. But if you could numb the eyeball and then you could remove it, it's, it's remarkable. And if, if Thomas Hardy, the novelist, wrote about his own cataract removal pre-cocaine, and described it like it's like a hot poker was put in your eye. And think about it. Not only do you have to watch the surgeon poke you in the eye, you have to feel it. So this was an incredible discovery that made front-page news around the world, not just in journals, but everywhere. And Freud was really ticked off about that. that <laughs> That did not sit well for him. And even later, as I said, in the 20s, he wrote an autobiography, a little thin one. And he blames his, his, his fiance for it. It had nothing to do with it. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, now, Freud hated Kohler, by the way. And he autographed a copy of uh, Uber Coca to Carl Kohler, but he put to Coca Kohler. <laughs> and uh, that name stuck. That name stuck, uh, much to Kohler's chagrin. It was even in his obituary in the New York Times in 1943. So uh, it brings to mind a joke is never really a joke. Now let's go to Gilded Age, New York, and we're going to meet William Stewart Halstead. And this is where the Baltimore part of the story comes in. William Stewart Halstead was uh, uh, the son of a very, very uh, profitable merchant uh, in New York. Uh, they had a summer home. Uh, he was uh, a, a terrible student. He described his childhood as nightmarish. He tried to run away several times. He went off to Yale University, where he was captain of the first 11-man football team at Yale. That is the extent of my knowledge of college football, so please don't ask any more. Um, and he also, uh, if you look at the uh, records of the Sterling Library, which is the Yale University Library, there's no record of him ever signing out a book during his entire four years there. But in his senior year, he walked over to the medical school and became fascinated while sitting in on a, a medical lecture. And he uh, just devoured two books, Gray's Anatomy, a very famous book of anatomy, and another book called Dalton's Physiology. John Call Dalton was a physiologist that tells you how the body works. Anatomy is the structure of the body. Physiology is how it works. And Dalton taught at Columbia University's College of Physicians and Surgeons. So it was really a fortuitous moment here. And of course, uh, William Stewart Halstead applied to Columbia. Now, he had two things, he had really very little going for him. He was a gentleman C student, but he had one thing in particular going for him is that his father was on the board of trustees of the College of Physicians and Surgeons. So when I have pre meds come to my office, 
for advice, I always tell them that's the best way to. <laughs> um, after, after he graduated from uh, uh, Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons uh, at the top of his class, he got a coveted uh, internship at the Bellevue Hospital. And Bellevue then, and it's still a major hospital, was a really a, a one of the great hospitals uh, in America. And there was a real revolution going on. This was 1878. This is just at the brink of germ theory. The notion, as espoused by Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch, and later a surgeon, Lord Lister, uh, said that there are microbes that cause diseases, or germs that cause diseases, infectious diseases. Now, Everyone's here nodding their head, of course, but this was, you know, earth-shaking news back then, and it was a laughable idea to many very prominent doctors. In fact, one of Halstead's doctors, a man named Loomis, said uh, on the day that the tuberculosis germ was announced, he said, people say there are germs in the air, but I can't see them, and everybody laughed. And you know, But the reality is that those guys who picked up on germ theory, they became the cutting-edge scientists and doctors of their day. And so, as you can see from one of these pictures, uh, this lower one, when surgeons operated, they often wore frock coats or they didn't put on any kind of uh, surgical garb. Uh, they would hold instruments in their mouth. Uh, sometimes they would drip their arms into the surgical site. It wasn't exactly hygienic, to say the least. And, you know, it's like that old vaudeville joke. The, the operation was a success, but frequently the patient died. And the patient would die because of a post-operative infection. So Halstead very early on became fascinated with germ theory and what was then called antiseptic surgery, where you dip your hands in all sorts of chemicals so that you don't introduce germs. And now we do something called aseptic surgery, where no germs are in the operating room at all. So he was constantly working on things that would improve surgery. He wanted to make the ideal operation. Well, around the same time that Carl Kohler had presented his news to the world, William Halstead was sitting in the reading room of the New York Academy of Medicine, and he read in the journal, uh, uh, called the New York Medical Journal, uh, about this discovery. And he thought this was incredible. Now, he didn't do eye surgery. He was a general surgeon. He did hernias and gallbladders, things like that. But he thought, well, if it can numb the eye, what if you inject it further and deeper and deeper? Could you numb more tissue? And this was really great because, as I said, these other anesthetics, as great as they were, ether and chloroform, were not the most benign agents. They were difficult to administer. Uh, they didn't always work. They made you groggy as hell. They made you throw up and things like that. So he began to experiment with cocaine. Unfortunately, just as Freud used himself as a guinea pig, Halstead used himself as a guinea pig. And because he was injecting it, which is a far more uh, successful way of reaching the brain uh, than sniffing it or drinking it, he became an addict rather quickly. And he just stopped going to his operations. He stopped going to the hospital. He started missing classes. No one knew where he was. And he was basically skittering his life away high on cocaine. Now, this is William Henry Welch, another great Baltimorean. Uh, he was one of the, uh, another one of the founding doctors of the Johns Hopkins Hospital. He was first among equals because he was the first dean. He was a pathologist, and he was... Uh, really the one who got everything going. And he was really a, a good friend of Halstead's because they were both at Bellevue together. And uh, Welch saw right away what was going on and said, look, I'm about to go down to Baltimore to found this, you know, I've got this incredible endowment. We're going to found the greatest medical school, the greatest hospital ever. 
uh, based on scientific research principles and the German university and so on. And I want you to come as a surgeon, but you know, you, you got to clean yourself up. And so the first thing they decided to do, uh, well, actually, I'm, I'm skipping a little bit. I start my book with this scene is that the final point where Welch found out about it is that Welch, as Halstead was called down to the uh, uh, emergency room, or it's called the accident room, to work on a compound fracture. A compound fracture is when the bone is so badly broken it sticks out of the skin. Now, if you don't have antibiotics, that's really serious because it'll get very infected and you can go septic and die rather quickly. But unfortunately, uh, Halstead was so high, he couldn't operate. His hands were so shaky, he couldn't operate. And so he went home. And that's how Welch actually found out about all this. So Welch wanted to help him, and he took him on a long ocean voyage. And that was the thing men of means would do to cure all sorts of things, tuberculosis, syphilis, cocaine addiction, alcoholism, you name it. And they went all the way down to the Windward Island, which is near Barbados. And the, the plan was Welch would dole out less and less cocaine and break him of the habit. But about halfway during the voyage, uh, Halsa was getting more and more agitated. And he finally figured out that in the ship's first aid cabinet was a very good store of both cocaine and morphine. And so he kind of indulged himself. And by the time they got back, he was, you know, he was just stoned out of his mind. And uh, Halstead went back to his townhouse, and Welch said, well, I'm going to be seeing you tomorrow, and we're going to talk further. Well, Welch did come back the next day and said, this isn't going to work. I couldn't help you. But there is one place that might be able to help you. And there was an insane asylum in Rhode Island, in Providence, Rhode Island, called the Butler Hospital for the Insane. And there was a doctor there named John, Woodbury, Woodbury, John Sawyer Woodbury who was experimenting treating not just alcoholics but also heroin addicts, uh, morphine addicts. There weren't a lot of cocaine addicts yet. In fact, Paul said it's in that first cohort of cocaine addicts. But Welch, who knew everything about medicine and knew where everything was going on, he was so well-connected, knew that this was the place. Now, Admitting yourself to an insane asylum in 1885, uh, it's not like going to passages in Malibu or something like that. <laughs> you know, I mean, Lindsay Lohan has a much better deal. Uh, in, and, and going to an insane asylum was, you know, pretty creepy. You didn't go if you could avoid it. And I love that the term for psychiatrists back then were called alienist because the patients were so alienated from reality that they needed somebody to guide them back. But there was this one doctor who could, could do something for him. And you can see scenes. This was a pretty ritzy rehab place. There was you know, room for musicales, and there's a bedroom, a library, a greenhouse. Uh, and so it was a pretty nice place. And nothing seemed to work. I mean, they were doing a lot of talk therapy, you know, uh, trying to give him confidence and so on. But Halstead still remained off the cocaine, very agitated, very very touchy, and he didn't, couldn't sleep well. So they tried giving him things like bromides, which is an old-fashioned sleeping pill, didn't work very much. Hot compresses didn't work very well. Hot toddies, that didn't work very well. And then finally somebody, you know, doctors always, you know, no doctor likes to stand there. They all like to do something. We all do. And so they decided, well, let's give him some morphine. And that worked. But in the opposite of unflagellable marks, though, he became first a cocaine and then a cocaine and morphine addict. And he be, we remained a cocaine and morphine addict for the rest of his life. He never really shook it. He would have periods of time that he could shake it, 
but those two monkeys were on his back for the rest of his life. Well, somehow he convinced Halstead, uh, Halstead convinced Welch that he was clean, and Welch brought him to Baltimore. They lived together first on Cathedral Street, later on St. Paul, and uh, Welch was his minder. They went to the hospital together every day. They had their meals at the Maryland Club uh, every evening. Uh, they played cards. Uh, Welch kept his money. And Halstead did not come to the Hopkins Hospital as a surgeon. He came as a special graduate student in the uh, Department of Pathology. So he was a lab guy, and he was working on dogs. So this great surgeon, his only patients were dogs, and he was working on all these neat procedures, how to do a safe gallbladder procedure, how to do a thyroidectomy. He later developed the radical mastectomy, which was a very important treatment for breast cancer in the 1890s. But this was all during the period uh, when he was not yet ready to operate on human beings, and he could just show that he was doing good work. And, you know, Halstead must have had the weight of the world on his shoulders because he knew, in fact, he did have one relapse the following year, and he knew if he kept doing this, if people found out about it, it would not only ruin him, it would ruin the hospital. Here you have a brand-new hospital that's touting itself as the world's greatest and everything, and you have your head surgeon who's a raging addict. So from right from the get-go, Halstead's addiction was shrouded in secrecy and silence and shame. And he remained that way. He didn't talk to anybody about it. Uh, and perhaps if he talked to anybody, it was Welch, but only occasionally. And so he lived this secret life and was always struggling against uh, the two drugs that held him enslaved. Now, he did convince enough people that he was clean enough to become the surgeon-in-chief. Uh, and he met a nurse, uh, a scrub nurse. She was in her o his OR, Miss Caroline Hampton. And... Uh, Caroline Hampton was a very interesting one from a wealthy family in North Carolina. And she developed, because back then, uh, they would dip, all surgeons and nurses would dip their hands in carbolic acid before they operated, which is a very toxic chemical. and makes your hands all red, and uh, you get all sorts of rashes. And so she had this terrible dermatitis, this skin rash from her fingertips all the way to her elbow. And so Halstead really wanted to help her out, so he designed... Uh, his and her rubber gauntlets. Took a train up to New York where the Goodyear Tire Company's offices were, showed them his designs, and he brought these his and her rubber gauntlets. This is one of the original four that's in the Hopkins archives. Uh, and so that's where the rubber surgical glove, which is the icon of modern surgery, it later everyone wanted to use them for reasons of aseptic surgery, but it really started as a way to impress a girl. Um, he was brilliant. He would come up with all sorts of great operations, but he was really quirky. He was odd. He was often absent. He was a difficult guy uh, post-addiction. Pre-addiction, he was one of the friendliest guys in the world. Students loved him. They just lined up to take classes with him. After, uh, when he got to Hopkins, he was very mean. He did not suffer fools gladly. He frequently spoke so quickly on purpose so that the students couldn't take notes. They always referred to him as the professor, but not in a polite term. Uh, and uh, But oftentimes, he just wouldn't show up. He'd be AWOL. One time, he was three hours late for an operation. Everybody was waiting for him. And he came in, oh, my wife and I were killing rats in our basement. <laughs> and there was a file in, it's still there, in the archives, uh, in the trustees uh, section, on the matter of Dr. Halstead's absences. 
So he just would frequently not show up. And the thing is, is that if he was high, he would not operate on a patient. For example, if he's on cocaine, his hands would shake too much. You know, it's a stimulant, and it'll give you a tremor, and that's not what you want in somebody who's, you know, operating on you. If he was taking morphine and he took too much, he would try to calibrate the doses so it wasn't too high, it wasn't too low. He'd be hungover, he'd be sleepy. Or if he wasn't taking either one, he might be hungover. And so he would just not show up, or he'd walk away from the operating room. His residents loved that because his residents wanted more OR time. And so they thought that was really great, but the reality is they were enabling him. And when you think about it, the whole surgical residency system, where you have 20 young people doing all your operations and taking all your calls, which is a great way to train doctors, is also a great way to be an active addict if you're the surgeon on top, because it, he had people working for him all the time. Now, he had many enablers. One was William Osler, the great internist, John Singer Sargent painting of the four doctors. Osler knew he was a morphine addict, in fact, found him uh, withdrawing one day, and he wrote about it, but wrote about it in a secret document he called The Inner History of the Johns Hopkins Hospital that he sealed away and wasn't published till 1969. Now imagine a doctor knowing another doctor is addicted to a substance and writing about it, but writing but sealing it away for another 80, 90 years. It's supposed to be 100 years, but Historians love to read other people's mail, so we opened it 20 years earlier. <laughs> now, here's where H.L. Mencken comes in. Now, there were other enablers, too. There was Joseph Bloodgood, his chief resident. Isn't that a great name for a surgeon, Bloodgood? <laughs> you can't get better than that. Uh, Bloodgood was the guy who said we loved it when Halstead was uh, you know, shaky, and they, they blamed, he blamed it on his cigarette consumption. And, and Halstead used to smoke three or four packs of Palm Mall cigarettes a day, but... Uh, that probably wasn't what, what was doing it. But Mencken wrote about it, and you can find it in the uh, diary, something that was sealed till 1985, 84, uh, 86. So it wasn't you know, something that was sealed away. That uh, every, He wrote that everyone knew that Halstead had some kind of a problem, and yet he didn't report. Here's one of the greatest journalists in the world who lived to expose the truth and wasn't really saying much about it. And then finally, there's a man named W.G. McCallum who wrote the official biography of William Stewart Halstead. And the story he told is that when Halstead came to Hopkins, he kicked the habit, and that was it. And that was still the story they were telling in 1986 when I was an intern. And I remember my first day of orientation. There's a room right off the surgical suite that's called the Halstead Room, and there's some of his stuff there. And they told this story about you know, how he licked the habit. Well, he didn't. And he lived a very lonely, troubled life uh, as a result of being both an active or recovering or something in between kind of addict. And it, when I wrote this and I was going in through his papers, sometimes it was just so depressing and sad that this talented man, everyone who's ever come off an operating table since his time has William Hall said to thank, and yet he was so tortured and he had no one he could talk to about this and no one who could have helped him. But there were a lot of enablers. Now, one guy who figured it out is this man, George Hewer. Hewer was another one of his chief residents, and he wanted to know, why was Halstead so grumpy all the time? Why did he not show up for things? And so on. And he basically figured out through uh, another surgeon named Harvey Cushing, who was worked for Halstead, then went off to Harvard, is that the truth was is that William Halstead never really kicked the habit. He probably binged on cocaine. 
during the summers when he went down to North Carolina or he went to Europe where he'd famously hole himself up into a hotel room in Paris and you wouldn't see him for weeks. And he probably used a dose of morphine every night when he got home from the hospital. He would go home promptly at 4.30. He would lock himself in his study. He wouldn't emerge until 7 p.m. He uh, had a phone, but no resident ever dared call him at night hours. And depending on how much he took or how little he took, would decide what he would do the next day. He talked about it a little bit near the end of his life, but he could never really admit to anybody. He would always talk about his health problems. Well, we're going back to Freud a little bit, and then I'll, I want to get to some questions and such. But Freud became interested after he left Vienna in 1886, after the Kohler discovery, and he studied under Charcot, one of the great neurologists, and that's where Freud got into hysteria. Charcot was a hysteria expert. And when you read Freud's letters from Paris to uh, Martha Bernays, he's using quite a bit of cocaine. Uh, he then came back to Vienna, even though this painting's from 1905, it's not from the turn of the century, and he became friendly with a man named Wilhelm Fleece. Fleece was an ear, nose, and throat man from Berlin, and he had his own interesting theory that everything in the body was connected to the nose. <laughs> and so that a woman's menstrual cycle was connected to the nose and that uh, a man's reproductive cycle was somehow connected to those. Well, you know, Freud's theories are pretty wacky, too, so these guys actually became very close friends. But the treatment, the treatment that Fleiss recommended was to paint the nose with cocaine, the inside of the nose, and to remove what's called the turbinate bone from there, and that would cure that. So Freud had a patient named Emma Eckstein. She becomes Irma in uh, Interpretation of Dreams. And Emma Eckstein was not uh, a hysteric of you know, legendary proportions, and she wasn't getting better. So Freud wonders something more than just a hysteria going on. So he called in a, another doctor, brought him in. The doctor was Fleece, and of course he diagnosed the problem with her nose. She needed to be painted with cocaine, and he removed the turbinate bones. And then he left. He went back to Berlin. And Emma became very sick very quickly. And she got sicker and sicker and sicker. And the room began to smell very badly because she was infected. And so Freud got another ENT man to look in. And then he started probing around. And he removed a meter-length piece of gauze. So it's kind of the oldest surgical mistake in the book. He left a sponge in the patient. And she nearly died. And in fact, you see her in profile in this picture because her face was sort of caved in after that procedure. So she had real damage. And when Freud realized this, he had to have known at some point if this got out, this was malpractice. And this is not a 2013 definition. This would have been malpractice. So there would have been no Sigmund Freud as we know him today. He would have been drummed out of the court. And so he did all sorts of mental gymnastics in his head of why this happened and so on. And he dreamed about it. And it becomes one of the main dreams in the interpretation of dreams. It becomes the model dream. It's called Irma's dream. And the way he uh, uh, described it is he had, he's at a big party. And there's all sorts of syringes and bloody gauze all over the place. And Irma or Emma comes up to him in front of Vienna's finest and says, you nearly killed me. And the way he explained it in the book is that here's why this happened. Here's why I had this dream. I am so invested in my patients that when they have difficulties, I feel their pain. One of the great proofs of dreams as wish fulfillment. 
Um, this is the original title page of uh, Interpretation of Dreams. And in fact, this is uh, at Sigmund Freud's father's funeral. He had a very strange relationship with his father as well as his mother. They had an extended family. His family relations were, well, they were Freudian. And, um, <laughs> and in October of 1896, uh, the night of his father's funeral, he writes to Wilhelm Fleiss and says, by the way, I have put the cocaine brush aside, and there's no evidence that he ever picked it up again, at least none, in none of his millions of letters, you know, tens of thousands of letters. And here's a guy who was writing a lot about how much he was using cocaine and what it did to him and so on. We don't see that ever again. So he probably was able to kick the habit and uh, became Sigmund Freud. Uh, the last 16 years of his life were just awful. Uh, he had oral cancer because of his other addiction. He smoked about 20 cigars a day. Uh, and he underwent about 30 different operations and had to put on these metal prosthetic devices. And then he finally died in London uh, a year after he escaped from Vienna uh, in 1939. He escaped in 1938. Uh, Halstead, on the other hand, as I said earlier, he, he remained in limbo. He never recovered, and yet he did become the greatest surgeon in the world. Everybody around the world wanted to know what Halstead of Baltimore thought. And yet he had no friends. He had a very distant relationship with his wife. He had no children. Uh, he was derided in his day as a difficult and cantankerous man. And so I, had, uh, I was talking about this, and a plastic surgeon came up to me and said, well, you know, there was no collateral damage because look what a great career he had. And I said, you know, only a plastic surgeon would make such a skin-deep diagnosis. <laughs> you know, of you can see why I am so popular among my colleagues. Because <laughs> The other day, a neurosurgeon came up to me and said, you know, Howard, when I retire, I want to be a historian of medicine just like you. And I said, you know, that's really funny, because when I retire, I want to be a neurosurgeon like you. <laughs> but, but anyway, uh, but anyway uh, there was collateral damage. He had an awful life. He had an awful life. He had awful relationships with people. And one only wonders what he might have done if he hadn't been so addicted. And so people always ask me, you know, is it because of or in spite of their addiction that both Freud and Halstead did these remarkable things? To be sure, there was a spark of something when, when Freud started looking at cocaine that might have made him think about, for example, free association or it might have made him think about those dreams. But the hard work of writing page after page, volume after volume, patient after patient, that is not the work that is well done while bombed on cocaine. Just not. That's not a drug that lends itself to really good, thoughtful work. And similarly, when Halstead, if you look at his records, his surgical records, he's more active when he's not using, and he's completely inactive when he is using. So I really think it was in spite of that these guys were just such incredible uh, human beings. They were so dedicated to their craft and so wanted to give their healing gifts to the world that they worked steadily in spite of these problems. And so I'll close at that point and take any questions that you might have. Thanks so much. Thank you, Dr. Marco. If you would, raise your hand. I'll come over to you and give you the mic. To what extent are um, doctors today on things, and what's the popular 
thing they're on. Medical doctors or? <laughs> well, you know, we live in a medicated culture and, you know, there's a pill for everything. And so um, uh, we do have a huge problem of substance abuse among health professionals, nurses, doctors, pharmacists. And it's only in recent days, you know, when I talked about Osler enabling his colleague, well, that was quite common or you just you know, wouldn't look the other way. There's a wonderful William Carlos Williams story called Old Doc Rivers about a doctor who was a heroin addict, yet everyone loves this doc. Uh, now we tend to be a little bit better about recognizing these symptoms, and uh, they're less punitive. So a lot, there are a lot of programs for doctors, nurses, pharmacists, what have you. They have to give their license over to the state, and it's held in escrow. And then they're in these recovery programs. They have to uh, give urine tests and things like that. But uh, it is a problem, and it's a problem in our society. One out of four Americans either have or will have a substance abuse problem during their lifetime. And it's, it's ubiquitous, whether it's booze or you know marijuana or cocaine or whatever, or the new stuff, because we invent new stuff. They call them prescription drugs, but we invent new stuff all the time. Uh, thanks, first of all, for this lecture. It was wonderful. Thank you. Um, I remember that Freud was asked once, uh, what are the essentials for human life? And he said, to love and to work and the courage to do both. Yeah. And when you think of his old age in such horrible pain, yeah. and he wouldn't take any right. dope because he wanted to be alert so he could write and think. Right. He was really heroic in those last years. He really was. And um, I, that's a, thanks for reminding me. You're right. He did say that. And, uh, when you, you know, do you have ever seen the collected volumes of Freud? It'll fill a shelf. It's like 26 volumes. And uh, one of the reasons I think Freud is so fascinating is that he wrote so well. I don't read German all that well, so I read him primarily in trans. And he's still really fun to read. And you're right. Uh, he had this terrible... Uh, oral cancer, and, you know, the treatments were just barbaric back then. And, you know, if you've ever seen in a medical museum what these prosthetic mouth devices look like, they're big hunks of metal. They could not have been comfortable to wear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it would make you salivate, and, you know, like, you know, he's always had a handkerchief. Now, at the very end of his life, the last day or so, he had a, a doctor named Max Schur who came from Vienna to London with him. And he said, it's time now. You remember our deal. And this is in, these papers are in the Library of Congress, Max Schur's final chart. And indeed, Schur did give him a fatal dose of two doses uh, of morphine. Uh, so there was some, you know, he was going to die, but that, that, was, that was the way he died. Also, I remember the king of England was going to deliver a fatal dose to have his death occur at the right time for announcing that. Hmm. Well, I think these these uh, these kind of things happen a lot more than we like to think. You know, you can have a whole TV show about that. You know, like <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I don't know about that. But uh, but but Freud did indeed have uh, uh, a deal with his doctor when the pain became just too bad. Yeah, I would like to sort of touch on what that fellow just asked you about doctors who are still pill poppers and the modern sort of um, what they call a thin red line. You guys, doctors, have that. Doctors really do not report each other. Doctors don't really even allow the public to report on them. In fact, online, if you try to report a doctor that has a high mortality rate and seems to be very um, suspicious, they get sued by, by doctors for that. 
I mean, that's very common. Doctors will not publish their mortality rates and stuff like that. They will not allow it to be published. There's not sites like, say, for like carpenters or plumbers or other professionals, you know, who do bad stuff like that. There is no sites that are allowed for doctors. Well, the, I mean, a lot of it has to do apparently with their pill popping and stuff like that, because doctors are, in fact, the most pill popping profession still to this time. Because obviously they have a lot of it on their hands and stuff like that, and oh. it's easy for them to get a lot of this stuff. Well, there's a lot of things there, so let me try to unpack them. Um, actually, the highest rate of uh, substance abuse is in pharmacists, followed by charge nurses who have the keys to the thing, uh, dentists, and then doctors. That doesn't mean it's not common. But it's not, mortality rates aren't necessarily connected to pill popping or whatever. There are, by the way, many places that will report, good hospitals will report their morbidity and mortality rates for surgery, like cardiac surgery. And I would strong, as a physician, I would strongly advise you to find those hospitals. <laughs> you know, to go to. It's reminds me, I, was, I do a lot of work on epidemiology, and somebody said to me the other day, you know, I never wash my hands, ever. And, you know, and he's just taking over my lectures. I just, I never wash my hands. No, you, you don't have to wash. I said, you know, remind, ladies and gentlemen, remind me never to shake this man's hand. <laughs> but, but, but it, it, you know, there is this whatever thin white line, you know, there is a protective thing. But there are many hospitals. I, I work at one. University of Michigan really has modeled a program where if we make mistakes on a procedure, we go directly to the patient and tell them about that. It's actually lowered our malpractice load and has been written up in the New England Journal of Medicine and has been adopted by a lot of other places. It doesn't mean there's not a lot more work to be done, um, but I think uh, the information is out there and uh, it's important to be a smart medical consumer. Just because somebody has a white coat doesn't necessarily mean you want them to operate on you. Did Mencken have any direct interactions with Halstead? A little bit. He writes about him um, as a very odd, prickly fellow, and that. But he did say he was the only true scientist of the Big Four. He didn't like Welch at all. He thought he was a windbag. Um, I, I disagree. I think Welch is one of the great American medical statesmen, and, and he was a windbag. But he was he he was our windbag, and we liked him. And um, but. But he 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 um, he knew everybody, and he was really a you know a big man on campus. He knew Osler only slightly because Osler left in 1906 to go to Oxford, and he knew and hung out and hated Howard Kelly, the gynecologist. Kelly was uh, famous for being a Bible thumper. He was a fundamentalist Christian, and and Menke would just make fun of him all the time. And there was once uh, Kelly wrote a book called The Scientific Man and His Bible. And it's a way of explaining evolution in biblical terms. And Mencken reviewed it in the American Mercury. And it's a great review. It's about 1925, I think. And he says, you know, Howard Kelly invented the Kelly clamp. He developed this procedure. He's this professor, this great professor. He's written, how this man could be such a flaming idiot. <laughs> you know, I'm paraphrasing. I, you know, but uh, So he, he loved to torment Howard Kelly. But he knew all of them. And uh, he, he knew the people who succeeded. Uh, Luellis Barker and a few of the others. And in 1936, he wrote, a, I think it was a 10-part series for The Sun about the Hopkins Hospital. And he goes to each department 
the pediatrics department. And it's really kind of neat how he describes what's going on. So he was a great friend of the Hopkins Hospital. And he, he was treated there, too, many times. Yes, sir? I have heard, and I don't know if it's true, that Freud did not stop smoking when he was diagnosed with oral cancer. Is that true? He did not. He did not. He would cut down, and then he would come right back up again. I also heard that he said that the reason he didn't was with creativity. Yeah, yeah. He would write with the cigar in his hand. And, you know, I mean, it's funny about, uh, well, I'm sure there's a real Freud, there's an oral description about why, but um, um, it's funny about uh, writers and what little things they pick up. I write for, I'm, I'm not comparing myself to Freud, but I write with a fountain pen. I cannot write with a ballpoint pen. And it, it's something about that act that uh, I find very soothing. Now, fortunately, I'm not going to die of that fountain pen unless, unless I stab myself with it. But, um, but he really liked, he liked the effects of nicotine. He really did, yeah. And he was an addict to it, yeah. Way in the back. Yes, uh, I'd like to know your uh, opinion about understanding the uh, harmful effects of cigarette smoking and marijuana. Why the medical profession hasn't had a stronger impact on politicians in our country? Well, does anyone have an impact on politicians? In this <laughs> I don't want that one. <laughs> well, actually, you know. When I started writing this book, because uh, most of my research has been on the history of epidemics and, um, and infectious diseases, and I, I started seeing as a pediatrician a lot of teenagers who were coming in truly addicted to stuff, and it was primarily marijuana. And, you know, the teaching was when I was a resident was that marijuana is not addictive, you know. Well, for 5% it is, and these kids are doing it all the time. And it's a lot stronger than it ever was, you know, because you've got these you know, Luther Burbank dudes growing it and making really powerful stuff. So I became very interested in seeing a lot of patients with that. Now, what I can tell you what has changed in my own career is that when I was in medical school, I graduated in 1986, there was no teaching of substance abuse at all. Does that mean we didn't see it? We saw it all the time. When I was a, a, a third-year student on, on busy city hospital wards, you treated... Uh, intravenous drug users, but you treated them for the kidney they messed up or the heart lesion they developed, you know, but nobody addressed what caused the problem itself. Now almost every medical school has in the medical school curriculum and then later in the residency curriculum um, lessons about how to recognize uh, patients who are abusing substance because no matter what field of medicine you go into, you'll see that. But the key is if you're not looking for it, you won't find it. Now, as to the government, you know, the war on drugs uh, hasn't been all that successful. You know, We're, we still have, we have more drugs coming in than before we started it. And what has really been interesting among doctors, public health workers, lawyers, and judges, and police officers, are the development of things like drug courts and the idea that this is a public health problem rather than a criminal problem. You know, we have 66% of the people who are in jails today in the United States are because of some kind of drug offense. So that's probably an idea that, that things aren't working very well. So I don't think we've done enough, but I think we've done a lot more over the last 25 years than we are doing. And so I'm hopeful that we'll do more in the years to come. It's, it's the greatest epidemic facing us right now, around the world. Since you brought up Howard Kelly, uh, 
was he a, a colleague of Paul Sads? And if so, did he help to cover up or did he know? Uh, Kelly, Welch, Halstead, and Osler were the original four doctors. Uh, Halstead surgery, Osler internal medicine, Welch was uh, pathology and was the dean, and Kelly was a gynecologist. Um, Kelly and, and Halstead, ironically, because they both did, a gynecologist does surgery, but they didn't hang out together very much and didn't like each other very much. And Kelly found Halstead very standoffish. And what's very interesting, if you look at descriptions of the day uh, of Halstead, is that when he, uh, sometimes he would, not, he would not make eye contact with people, or he would hide in stairwells when people were coming. And he'd say, well, I just don't want to deal with them. But if you, if you take a lot of cocaine, you, your pupils will be big, like doll's eyes. And if you take a lot of an opiate, your pupils will be tiny and pinpoint. I can't believe those doctors would not have recognized that very obvious physical sign. So he tried to, he wasn't, the only doctor he was really close with was Welch. And he had a little bit of a closeness with Osler in the late 1890s when Osler saw him shivering and shaking because he was clearly withdrawing and he admitted he was taking three grains of morphine a day, which is like 180 milligrams. And so that would knock you into tomorrow. That's a lot. That is a lot of, of morphine. And that shows you how habituated he was to it. But really, Welch was the only person he was, he was fairly close to. Okay, we have time for one more question. Only one more, yeah. yeah as you know, uh, Sherlock Holmes was supposed to be addicted to 7% solution right. of cocaine. Do you think uh, the author, Dr. Arthur Kahn-Doyle, might have had some experience along those lines. Absolutely, and I, I talk about him a little bit in the book. Arthur Conan Doyle was an eye doctor, and he was also a medical journalist, and he was up to date on everything as these other guys were, and he read about it, and that's where he found it. And so he played with it a little bit of himself, and he gave that attribute to Sherlock Holmes with the... Uh, it's in the first one. Uh, it's a study in Scarlet. Is that the first one? You know, his modeled arm, and he takes out the Morocco case, and he injects it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny. He used a 7% solution. Uh, Freud liked a 4% solution. So. Okay. Thanks.